Well, church, here we are again in God's providence. Again, we're unable to meet as a congregation and out of love for our neighbor and agreement and obedience to the government God has placed over for over us for our good. Uh, we're breaking again from our normal weekly gathering as a church family, and we're praying for a quick end to this to this virus outbreak. However, in the meantime, in God's providence, we're not able to meet, but in God's provision, uh, we are able to uh, have a Bible study online. And so uh, we are not necessarily, I said this last time, but we're not necessarily trying to recreate a worship service, um, but we are taking advantage of technology to dig into God's word together. And we agree that's what we need. We don't ultimately need the latest news report. We don't ultimately need even health or wellness. What we need is God's truth brought to us in his everlasting word. Uh, And as we do, I kind of uh, have this quote-unquote sabbatical from church uh, that has been providentially given to us. I hope and I pray and I hope you guys join in praying with me that God uses this in each of our hearts to renew our love for each other and for his church. Um, Christian, think about this not only as a a bad thing, because it is. um, This is a crisis in our world that we must ask the Lord for mercy for. But as a God-given opportunity also for us to have our affections for Jesus and his bride stirred up again. Um, As humans, whenever we get into a routine, that routine can very easily become a rut. And so praise God for this chance where we've been jolted out of our routine. Uh, So although we can study the Bible together, we can't sing together, we can't share the Lord's Supper together, we can't have one another in each other's homes for hospitality, um, we're deprived for a time of those graces. But I think at the same time, there's a mysterious gift to us from the Lord in this season uh, that we might come again together whenever that that time will be and rejoice all the more in the good gifts God has given us in his church. I pray that we will grow to love the church more because we miss it more for this time. So let's dig back into God's word. So late last summer, as the school year got off to a start, we began a study in the gospel of Luke. Uh, And even though that study has been interrupted quite a bit recently, um, Lord willing, we plan to be in this gospel for the foreseeable future. So let's get our bearings again very quickly. Uh, Luke, you may remember, is a physician in the first century. And he's writing down a gospel account of Jesus's ministry uh, by gathering different testimonials or testimonies from reliable sources and sort of putting them together for a man named Theophilus. We read about this in the prologue to the gospel, chapter one, verses one through four. And Luke kindly shows us why, why he's putting this gospel account together. He says, so that Theophilus might have certainty concerning the things he has been taught. And our hope, church, is the same. That the same purpose Luke had for Theophilus would be the purpose we have as we come to this gospel. That as we consider it together, we will be encouraged and grounded, and our confidence would be built up in faith in Christ. So let's remember real quickly, uh, thus far in Luke, we've had a lot of birth narratives with John the Baptist and Jesus Uh, We've seen Jesus grow. We've seen the the account of him in the temple as a young boy. Uh, We've seen him be baptized, kind of the call to ministry. 
Uh, we've seen the temptation after his baptism. And in the few, last few chapters, Jesus's fame has actually really spread and his identity and mission have become more and more clearly seen in the gospel of Luke. This clarity about his mission and identity has been met with both joy as men literally drop their things and follow him and opposition as the religious establishment of the day tries in in every way to try to stop and silence him from speaking what he's speaking. So last time we were in Luke, uh, about three weeks ago, March 8th, we saw Jesus telling the Pharisees that he's bringing something new. You might remember that, kind of those interesting metaphors with a wineskin uh, and, a cl- and a piece of cloth. Uh, and so Jesus's point in all of that was that he's bringing something new, something beautiful that cannot be blended with any sort of Jewish religion, but is something altogether new and better. And that theme of newness continues today as we turn to Luke chapter 6. So if you have your Bibles or your phones or your devices, turn with me to Luke chapter 6. And I'll read for us the first 11 verses. Luke 6, starting in verse 1. On a Sabbath, while Jesus was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them together in their hands. But some of the Pharisees said, Why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? And Jesus answered them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priests to eat, and also gave it to those with him. And he said to them, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Verse 6. On another Sabbath, Jesus entered the synagogue and was teaching, and a man was there whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath, so that they might find a reason to accuse him. But he knew their thoughts. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come and stand here. And he rose and stood there. And Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? To save life or to destroy destroy it? And after looking around at them at at all, he said to him, Stretch out your hand. And he did. And his hand was restored. But they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. Two simple points that I think faithfully show us what's going on in this text. First, the authority of Jesus. And second, the mercy of Jesus. So authority and mercy of our Savior, Jesus Christ. So first, church, let's look at the authority of Jesus. Look with me at verse 6. There we read, on the Sabbath, while Jesus was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. So the Sabbath, Uh, the Sabbath was the seventh day of the week. Uh, You might remember when we studied Exodus together as a church a few years ago, we spent a lot of time considering the role of this special day, the Sabbath, and, and the role that played for God's people Israel. So the Sabbath was rooted in the very creation order, you might remember, as, as God rested on the seventh day from his work. And in Exodus, we saw he called his special covenant people to rest on that seventh day as well. Uh, he called them to do this in order to, to remember their identity as the people who belong to him, to Yahweh. 
he said it was a, uh, a day to keep as holy unto him, where they, did, they, they rested from the labor that characterized their other six days of the week. Uh, and as we go through the Old Testament, we see the Sabbath is kind of held up as a hallmark of God's people, uh, as something they should take very, very seriously and treat with holiness. And we see some scary accounts where those who break the Sabbath are faced with severe repercussions. However, by the time Jesus' disciples are plucking grain to eat on the Sabbath day in Luke chapter 6, the Jewish leaders, the Pharisees, have added even more rules to observing the Sabbath. So in order to make sure they kept God's law, they added sort of these more extra stipulations around it about what could or could not be done on the Sabbath. Now, part of those rules had to deal with harvesting grain. And so the Pharisees, the Jewish leaders, see Jesus' disciples plucking and rubbing heads of grain together on the Sabbath, and they pounce. That's unlawful. That's not right, verse 2. But some of the Pharisees said, Why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? Now, the Pharisees are being pretty nitpicky. And what's more, they're condemning the disciples for breaking not just the fourth commandment, but their own sort of buffer laws around that commandment. Jesus is also indicted in that accusation, and he responds in verse 3, and he says, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priests to eat, and also gave it to those with him? Of course they've read it. They're the Pharisees. They're Old Testament experts. But for the rest of us, it might have been some time since we have been in that passage. So let's remember the story. Uh, Jesus is referring to the 21st chapter of 1 Samuel. Uh, There, David has been anointed by Samuel as the king of Israel to be, uh, but he's not in that position yet. Uh, You might remember the current king is named Saul. And at this point in Samuel, Saul is out to get David. David's on the run. David is a fugitive. And as he begins this life on the run, he stops by the tabernacle in a place called Nob. And as he and the priest Ahimelech talk, uh, David asks him for food for himself and for his men. Uh, and the priest says, well, the only food he has is the, is the, the bread that, that's put in the tabernacle as part of worshiping God. And that bread's only supposed to be eaten eventually by the priests. But David's need is evident. And so the priest gives it to him. And if you keep reading, it, it turns into a tragic story because this priest is later killed by Saul's order for being complicit with David, even though he didn't know. Jesus here uses this well-known story to show the Pharisees how David, even David, even their precious King David, acted in a seemingly unlawful way. And yet, there's no sign he was condemned by the Lord. It seemed like his need, David's need of of food, superseded the letter of the law. Now, I think we could read this in a wrong way. Jesus isn't being like a child who's getting caught being naughty and says, but Johnny was doing it. Uh, he, He did it. No, Jesus isn't trying to pass blame or get away with something. He's making a point. 
The Pharisees are so gung-ho about their rules and regulations that they've set up to guard the law. They're so adamant about how the law should and must be carried out per their instructions. But their own king, David, their great ancestor, had himself done something unlawful. What could they do with that? Well, they think about it. They needed to either say David was in the wrong, or they would have to say, yeah, we don't have all the right answers for how to interpret the law. Well, that's not all Jesus is trying to prove. He's got a big statement about his identity in verse 5. But before we get there, dear church family, let's just use this as an opportunity to reflect on our own lives and our life as a church. So I'm speaking in broad generalities here, but I think for most of us, like the Pharisees, we have long been involved in quote-unquote, religious practice, right? We have been Christians for a long time. We have been churchgoers for a long time. We understand the, the principles of God's word. But as sinners like you and I are prone to do, we can very easily begin to add sort of buffer rules to our lives and to our practice that go beyond what Scripture commands. And, and while discipline and commitment to discipline in our lives uh, is is wise and and even necessary, we can often forget that those things are just that, that they're personal commitments, not the inerrant truth of the word of God. In so doing, I think we can begin to conflate our own practices with the very truth of the Bible. This hits home for me, church. Uh, So I probably shared this story before, but when I was a, a teenager, I went to a, a seminar on Christian growth, and the speaker there encouraged everyone to, or some of the people in, the, in attendance, to make a vow to read the Bible for at least five minutes a day. I thought it was a good idea, so I took the vow. I took this solemn vow to read the Bible at least five minutes every day. Sounds like a good plan, right? And I'm sure it, it paid great dividends in my spiritual growth. However... As I continue that practice over years, I begin to add rules to my original promise. So I would start to add extra minutes before the five minutes and after the five minutes, just to make sure that I actually got a full five minutes. Just to make sure I didn't break the vow and thereby deserve God's judgment. I'm not, not kidding. See, what, what I thought was a good thing slowly became incredibly burdensome to me. As I began adding my own rules, reading God's word didn't bring me to God, but became in and of itself a God for me. A good luck charm to get me through the day. I subtly believed, whether I would say it or not, that God's blessing on my life was contingent on my obedience to a law he had never placed on me. Church, relationship with God includes his rules. It must. Any good relationship has rules and boundaries. Uh, Relationship with God includes his guidance and provision and sovereignty over our lives. But but things like rules and law are are, are meant to bring us to God, into relationship with God, not be items of worship in and of themselves, right? So Christian, are you hitting all your benchmarks for holiness in your life? And yet, you know you're missing out on the Holy One himself. Are you basing your life on biblical principles but missing the biblical prince himself, Jesus? 
Let's strive to to deny the temptation of the Pharisees to say and do all the right things, but miss out, miss out on a deep personal relationship with the God who loves you. Don't forget to dig deep and understand his heart towards you, his purpose for you to save you, to redeem you, to bring you close. In church, I think perhaps we can make this application even broader to our own congregation. So I wonder, and I think this is a healthy question to ask ourselves regularly as a church. Are there rules at Loudoun Valley Baptist Church that we have subtly in unspoken ways added to our life together as Jesus' body? Of course, we're going to have our own unique group of people and our own way of doing things. But are, are there things that perhaps we wouldn't say them out loud, but we've prayed, made it pretty clear to those who visit our church, that they need to be a certain kind of person to belong. Maybe they need to have a Christian background for numerous years, and, and so they can talk a certain way, avoid certain words, and, and say certain things that, that everybody will appreciate. Maybe they need to vote conservative, and agree with us on gun control and climate change or the lack of climate change. Maybe they need to make a certain amount of money and and meet a certain social standard. I don't know what it might be. But I do wonder if when a visitor comes to our gatherings, which Lord willing will have again soon, they sense any kind of secondary law at work in our midst. I wonder, what what do you think is the number one thing that either attracts or repels visitors to Loudoun Valley Baptist Church? Is it the good news of the gospel? And the news that they are sinners who need to repent? Is it truth of God's word and commitment to his word alone informing everything that we do and say? If, If that's what repels, then so be it. We will not compromise on that. But are there other things, other things of far lesser importance? Perhaps we've begun to slide into making unwritten laws in order for people to be acceptable to God. I think this is a danger for any Christian who's a sinner, which is all of us. And so it bears searching our hearts, not just as a church, but individually as we come to church to make sure that the gospel is the main thing. Dear church, the Pharisees are being shown here by Jesus, whether they like it or not, that their interpretation of the law is flawed. For David, back in 1 Samuel 21, his need was great enough that it was permissible for a priest to give him bread, normally designated for priests alone. That didn't seem to be high-handed rebellion against God. We do see God slay other men in the Old Testament for high-handed rebellion against him. Men who take his holiness lightly. But for Ahimelech and David in 1 Samuel 21, what seems to be at work is a matter of mercy and need and compassion during an unusual situation. I think also Jesus is pointing to David's authority as the king of Israel. And now in verse 5, he's going to say, my authority is greater. Look at verse 5 with me. This is an, an amazing statement about the authority of the Son of Man. Jesus says, the Son of Man, he's speaking of himself, that's one of his favorite designations for himself, 
is Lord of the Sabbath. (laughs) Jesus is, is saying the Pharisees have a certain method of keeping the law, but he himself, I mean, he's the owner of that law. He's the one who gets to decide how to interpret the law of the Sabbath. It's an incredible, an incredible statement of authority. A New Testament scholar, James Edwards, says this. He says, God instituted the Sabbath. And Jesus expressly claims God's prerogatives, presuming preeminence over the Sabbath. See, Jesus is the one who will determine how to keep the seventh day holy. Not the Pharisees. Jesus is bringing something new. He's not only educating the Pharisees on the Sabbath, he is the ultimate Sabbath rest for God's people. And as such, he knows what the Sabbath is for. He will prescribe how it's observed rightly. You see here, the Sabbath was never meant to burden God's people. It's given to them as a tool so they can find their rest in God alone. Now, do they break that law? And then that law becomes a burden and a condemnation on them for their sin? Sure, but the Sabbath, the the Sabbath over whom Jesus is Lord, is meant to give rest and blessing to his people. And Jesus makes that all the more clear in the final section of our passage this morning in verses 6 through 11. And if we see the authority of Jesus in verses 1 through 5, here we see the mercy of Jesus. Luke tells us it's another Sabbath there in verse 6. And Jesus is again in the synagogue on the Sabbath. This is a custom of his. And as he teaches, there's a man there. He's in attendance and he has a withered hand. We don't know necessarily what that means about this man's condition. It probably means that there's some sort of uh, muscle, muscular atrophy in his, in his hand that caused it to to shrivel up, um, perhaps a result of paralysis in the hand that made it unused and unusable. And into this situation, Jesus comes, and guess who's also there? His old buddies, the Pharisees. Luke tells us there in verse 7, they are present watching Jesus. Why? To see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might find a reason to accuse him. The sense here is a a close watch being kept like spies sent in to seek out evidence against a suspect. Not the right posture of heart when you're approaching the Lord of the Sabbath. And so Jesus sees a hostile situation in the making and he knows the thoughts of the Pharisees, verse 8, and he gets out of there. Does he? I would. I mean, the cards are stacked against Jesus here. But in verse 8, he takes the challenge head on. Praise Jesus for his courage and boldness. He doesn't shy away from adversity and conflict, but he uses this this face-off to teach the religious leaders who he is and what the law is for. So for King David in 1 Samuel 21, it was hunger. It was need that drove him to eat the bread that was reserved for the priests alone. But what about this man in the synagogue in Luke chapter 6? I mean, he certainly has a need. He would appreciate a working arm again. 
our working uh, hand. But that can wait until the Sabbath, after the Sabbath is over, can't it? The Sabbath is a day for ceasing labor. The Pharisees said it's a day for no healing that isn't absolutely necessary. That's what the Pharisees taught. But in verse 8, Jesus, the new Sabbath, the lawgiver come to be a lawkeeper for his people, says to the man with the withered hand, come and stand here. He's not just going to heal him over there. He's going to make sure everybody sees what's going on. And so he brings the man to center stage so nobody misses it. Verse 9. And Jesus said to them, meaning the scribes and the Pharisees, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? To save life or to destroy it? Jesus had a way of asking questions, didn't he? He's implying that healing this man's hand will be a good thing to do and not healing it will actually be wrong, harmful, and evil. He's teaching the Pharisees that the Sabbath is for more than just not working. It's for God and for the blessing of God's people. See, the heart of the law is the love of God and the love of neighbor. It's not just checking off of the boxes. It's interesting how in multiple different places in the Old Testament, we see God upset that his people have kept religious ritual at the expense of heartfelt worship. So in Hosea 6, for example, we read God's words as he says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice the knowledge of God, rather than burnt offerings. Does does that mean that God didn't care about sacrifice and burnt offerings? Absolutely not. Leviticus and other passages in Scripture carefully lay out laws about how to do this for his Old Testament people. It was certainly his desire that his people keep his law. It was important for them to offer sacrifices. But why was that important? Was it just important because it was something to do in the desert? In the wilderness, it was important so they could have relationship with Yahweh. Relationship was the end goal. It was for God's glory and the good of his people. God, church, God has always been after the hearts of his people, not their mere lip service or external behavior. And so Jesus asks this searching question to the Pharisees, and he graciously gives them time to answer. But they don't. In Mark's gospel, in his account of this miracle, we see Jesus is both angry and grieved by the silence of the Pharisees. And so he waits, and then he turns to the man with a withered hand, and he says in verse 10 of Luke 6, stretch out your hand. And we read that the man did so, and his hand was restored. And so two big climactic events about Jesus and the Sabbath. And how is it all wrapped up in verse 11? But the Pharisees were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. 
the sense of, of that fury there is one of irrational anger, kind of being beside themselves. Because what? Because the Pharisees have been shown up that their interpretation of the law is faulty. And now they can't even condemn Jesus because he hasn't even done anything. <laughs> he said a word. He didn't break the Sabbath. He just spoke and it was finished. So they know that he's undermining their interpretation of the law, but they know they can't do anything about it right now. That would make the best of Pharisees filled with wrath. Eventually, this animosity between the the Pharisees, the religious leaders, and the Messiah who's bringing something new will lead to Jesus' death. Jesus will soon, in Luke 9, when we get there, we'll see that he sets his face to Jerusalem, where he knows he will bear the sins of God's people on himself, where he knows where he will be harmed. He will be destroyed so he can do ultimate good and save the lives of all who turn to him in faith. Friend, if you're not a Christian and you're watching this, I I wonder if it surprises you that the people who hated Jesus most in the Gospels were the church people, the religious folk. Jesus didn't come for good people. Jesus came for needy people. Jesus didn't come to just help tie up the loose ends of people who were already pretty happy with their plan and their control for their life. He came for those who know they're a mess and need help. Jesus came to die. And when he died on the cross, a legal transaction was made by God the judge. And God put the sins and punishment of everyone who would turn in faith to Jesus. He put all of that sin and punishment on his son and killed Jesus for our sin. But that wasn't all. God didn't just neutralize us. He didn't just give us a clean slate so we could start over trying to please him again. He didn't just give us a second chance. The other side of that legal transaction was the applying of all Jesus's goodness and righteousness to us. That's how we're saved. We're saved because God the judge looks on Jesus and sees our sin. And God the judge looks on us and sees Jesus's righteousness. And he welcomes us into his family as he condemns his son. The good news is that Jesus didn't stay condemned forever. He was condemned under our sin, but then rose again in vindication and glory and triumph, showing that God's work had been completed and death was dead and sin was conquered. Friend, you can be welcomed into Jesus's family today. If you'll turn to God and repent of your sin, you'll have all that sin placed on Jesus and you will be saved. Even now. And dear church family, I miss you guys. And the overarching point of this church is that Jesus, uh, of this passage, is that Jesus has authority over the Sabbath. That's the, that's the big idea of this passage. He's bringing something new. He's fulfilling the Sabbath. He's fulfilling the entire law. He's bringing salvation for sinners. But we also get a glimpse here into the heart of the law which is God's holiness and mercy. See, even the fact that God, a holy God, would even condescend to give law to his people, to have relationship with them, 
is merciful. And, and ultimately, the whole purpose of the law was to fail in saving us so it could point us to the merciful law keeper, Jesus himself, who would come and keep the law for us when we couldn't, so we could be saved. At the heart of the law, we see God's holiness and mercy. So while the intricacies of the law were very important, especially in the Old Testament, Jesus reminds us again this morning that God's purpose in his law is ultimately to bring glory to himself and mercy and love to his people. Jesus went into the synagogue that Sabbath in verse 6 not to complete some dusty old religious exercise, but to do what the Sabbath was made for, to glorify, to glorify God to do good, to save life. That's the heart of the matter. Here we see the mercy of God, mercy to the undeserving. So the application, I think, is clear for us. If you're a Christian, especially church members of Loudoun Valley, you've experienced this firsthand mercy of God. You've experienced it. You and I did not deserve this sort of kindness and compassion, but God poured out his love and grace in immeasurable portion upon us at the cross. And now he calls us to those who he calls us as those who have been shown mercy to extend that same mercy to others. To those around us. So, Christian, brother and sister, where can you show mercy today? As soon as you turn off this live stream, where will you have opportunity to extend compassion? Maybe it's as simple as devoting time to those people you're stuck in close quarters with during this time of quarantine and social distancing. Easier said than done. To actually go out of your way to serve the people that you're sharing a house with right now. Maybe it's for parents, it's being quick to repent of irritable words towards your children as you spend more time with them than usual. Maybe it's as a home manager uh, repenting of neglecting the needs of your home and those living inside of it and seeking to care for those under your care. Maybe it means creatively finding ways to encourage your church family because we're not together right now. And And I think we can't, We can't forget that being apart like this is God's providential sovereignty, but it's kind of dangerous. For some of us, we'll be tempted to fall away from our spiritual disciplines because we don't have accountability. For some of us, we're just going to fall into discouragement. And so maybe mercy looks like you reaching out with words of grace to those who are lonely and isolated at our church. Maybe for some of you who are less at risk, Showing mercy and compassion today means reaching out to those in your community in higher risk to be, of being severely affected by COVID-19 and offering to run errands for them or buy groceries for them or just encourage them on the phone with the sound of another human's voice. Christian, consider the heart of God in mercy towards hungry, withered sinners like you and me. And rejoice that you are now called to be his instrument of restoration to others because of the power of the cross of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. 
Lord Jesus, we thank you for your authority and your mercy that are on display here in Luke chapter 6. We thank you that you have come to bring something new, to perfectly fulfill the law. Lord, we confess how we can often take your good gifts and add our own rules to make them burdensome. Lord, forgive us for our tendency to add our own righteousness into the mix. Lord, we are sinners, we are needy, and so we receive your perfect gift of righteousness. With that gift and with our new life, we ask then that you would help us to be obedient to you, out of joy, knowing that you, who have begun this good work in us, will carry it out to completion in the day of Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Church family, I hope you're doing okay. Uh, miss you. Let's be praying for each other. Um, remember, 7 p.m. tonight is our, our Zoom prayer meeting. Everyone's invited to that. If you need a link, text me or email me. Uh, for now, praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him, all creatures here below. Praise him above, ye heavenly hosts.